Welcome. Welcome back, Senator Lee. Thank you. And I know we got a rush because there's, once again, it's Christmas time, which means that there's um, huge budget battles and you are the institutional Grinch that doesn't want them to spend another $2 trillion without any accountability. That's, it's kind of like, that makes you a bad person, I guess. I, technically, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, although one could argue that, that it's the other way. Yeah. Uh, people don't really want the <laughs> stuff that yeah. they're um, uh, being deprived of by their government. And so in that respect, and maybe I'm more like one of Santa's helpers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I buy that. But some of your Republican colleagues and all of your Democratic colleagues don't seem to feel that same way. Um, it, it, it triggers me a little bit because I remember the early budget fights when you were first elected to the U.S. Senate. And we were, we were all these crazy radicals that wanted to balance the budget and and we didn't want people to spend money they didn't have in D.C. Um, but it feels like this is Groundhog Day. Like every year, um, they've they've created this massive, horrible spending bill, and they're holding it over uh, members of Congress's heads because they can't go home for Christmas until they do that. Has the process actually gotten worse? Yes, we've gotten even more um, in the pattern as a Congress of consolidating all spending bills into one bill. And then we've gotten even more in the pattern of bringing those bills up at inopportune moments, including and especially the moments before members were planning on going home to be with their families for Christmas. And so that creates this really odd dynamic in which people should be mad at those who have scheduled the vote for those time periods, or they should be mad at the committee that didn't get spending bills processed sooner or at the floor leader for not bringing up a spending bill and subjecting it to an open process weeks earlier. Instead, very often, they're mad at those people who are reluctant to spend multiple trillions of dollars uh, uh, just as a matter of convenience so that people can get home. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's a little bit offensive that people are inconvenienced by by. A two trillion dollar, and this is this is the so-called build back better plan, right? Right, right. And by the way, that that is part of what's so concerning uh, is that when we look at this, it's it's not concern for the convenience of the American people. It's concern for the individual convenience of individual members of Congress, and that translates into doing whatever the majority leader or the speaker wants at the moment, and that's yeah. terrible. Yeah. You pointed out, you, you gave us floor speech a couple days ago pointing out that if Chuck Schumer had done this in a more appropriate way, he wouldn't need your vote. That's right. That's right. Anytime he does that, um, as he did recently with the continuing resolution, um, there are ways of setting it up so that he doesn't need unanimous consent uh, to expedite the timing, but he delayed it so long uh, as, as we were approaching the continuing resolution last week, that he had to come to us and get unanimous consent. And so once he did that, I said, all right, well, that's fine. But at a minimum, uh, if you want my consent, I'm going to require that we take at least one vote uh, in which we say we're, we're going to fund the rest of government, but we're not going to fund that that aspect of government that will be involved in enforcing an illegal, immoral, unconstitutional vaccine mandate on the American people. 
And 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 by the way, you're a hero for doing that. Um, even though everybody in this town hates you for that, but I, I have a question. Well, you're in this town, Matt. Do you hate me? Well, some days. Um, I hate this town. Is what I hate. Um, but my wife won't let me leave, as you know. I'm I'm trapped. Um, but I have, a, I have a serious question. So there there is in this budget language that. Um, I guess would require the funding of the implementation of the vaccine mandate. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah. The, well, there's language in it that funds everything in government, and that's part of the tragedy of the continuing resolution, part of the tragedy of doing things uh, that result in either an omnibus or, or a continuing resolution. It's a blunt instrument with which to keep all of government funded. Yeah. And so th there is funding in it, it keeps the government operating, and it contains no restriction prohibiting the execution and enforcement of the vaccine mandates. What we wanted, what we proposed, what we voted on, and it narrowly failed, was an amendment saying you can't spend this money on that. Okay. So, so you, you, have, you, you got the vote you wanted. We got the vote we wanted. The vote didn't turn out the way we would have liked. Yeah. It ended up failing with a vote of 50 to 48. We had two Republican members um, uh, who weren't present at the time the vote was cast. Uh, we had hoped uh, that Senator Joe Manchin would vote with us, and we had long expected him to, and uh, I'm not sure why he didn't vote with us, but anyway, could have turned out differently. Yeah, because my question was if, if, if Congress had expressed an, an opinion about this, that would have an impact on the future constitutionality of of the vaccine mandate which has been now struck down by several courts i'm i'm asking a naive question because yeah. it I, I i don't i i believe that the vaccine mandate carried out by the federal government as proposed by president biden and his administration it's unconstitutional regardless of what we say about it right it just is unconstitutional and it's being challenged in uh, most of its iterations uh, uh, in the courts the most significant single piece and also the most egregiously unlawful piece, in my view, is the, uh, the, uh, the so-called OSHA mandate. Uh, that part of it being implemented by OSHA that applies to all employers with more than 99 employees. And that one is subject to a, uh, a court order halting its enforcement. It's been issued by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. I believe that... Um, that's going to stick. I mean, right now it's it's preliminarily enjoined. Uh, I believe that will turn into a permanent injunction. I believe that injunction will be upheld uh, uh, by the Supreme Court if and when it, it goes there. So I had uh, Congressman Thomas Massey on the show um, right after the Biden administration announced this initiative. And, and his theory— I'm sure he was not a fan of it any he, more than he, I he's, He actually may be more offended than you if that's possible, but I don't know if that's possible. But uh, his theory— which I think has proven out to be true, was that the Biden administration probably knew this was unconstitutional the whole time, but they wanted to bully American businesses into doing it anyway. And now um, OSHA has suspended the enforcement of it, but um, a lot of businesses have moved forward and, and fired people that refused to comply. And it's doubly offensive because these are probably frontline workers that were were. Um, uh, delivering our food to the laptop class that was, were afraid to go out of their house, people working in the healthcare system. 
Um, people that probably have natural immunity because they were out there the whole time. They didn't shelter in place because because they were deemed essential by the government. So now we don't need them anymore. And they and a lot of them have been fired. It doesn't. It seems like not only an immoral idea, but this this idea that um, we have a new variant coming out, but we're going to fire a bunch of healthcare workers. Yep. Does, does this make sense? It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all unless your objective, more than protecting health, safety, and welfare, is to enhance the reach of the federal government, to make government in general, and this government in particular, more of a brooding omnipresence in, in the lives of uh, American workers. Now, it's proving to be a, a wildly successful endeavor in that regard. Yeah. But that's not something we ought to be succeeding at, and that will leave a, a wake of destruction. It, it, now, one thing that's important to remember is that there is no authority in the federal government to issue a mandate like this. There, there just isn't. It's not appropriate for federal authority. Uh, but even if it were... The president certainly wouldn't have authority to do that on his own, not without uh, some grant of authority by Congress to the president, which we have not given him. This is, in my view, arguably the most egregious, sweeping, breathtakingly excessive instance of presidential overreach since April 8, 1952, which was the day when Harry Truman seized every steel mill in America to support the Korean War effort. It took a couple of months, but that case wound its way through the court system all the way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, within about two months, the Supreme Court knocked it down. One of the things that has made this one so nasty and so difficult to get smacked down by the courts sooner is that President Biden announced this in early September, but he didn't issue the order which was the condition that we had to have in place before any challenges could be brought in court until months later. And that's kind of a problem. Now, yeah. I, I still believe that the, the result's going to be the same. It's just that a lot of people will get hurt in the, in the process because a lot of companies anticipating that that order was coming started adopting their own policies. They didn't want to get flat-footed because they knew they would be fined uh, severely if they weren't prepared. So it was easier for them to put the policies in place and even begin firing people before the whole thing was settled. Yeah. That's tragic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more than tragic. It's, it sounds like a conscious effort to create that, that uncertainty that, that companies practically have to comply with and, and really alienating their workers at the same time. And, and there, you've seen a backlash um, amongst workers with airlines and other things. So it, it, it once again puts companies in the middle Right. Um, enforcing something that if the government really thinks they should do it, then they should take the responsibility for it. And this is happening at exactly the same time when we're dealing with a bunch of supply chain issues that our government itself has helped to create. You're going to make those a lot worse if all of a sudden we lose a sig significant amount of our workforce. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, across the spectrum. I mean, uh, obviously we've seen signs of it arising in areas that ought to concern us like healthcare, but from healthcare to manufacturing to shipping, um, uh, uh, 
even within our military, we've got a whole lot of people who are very concerned about it. You can't lose that much of your workforce as we apparently stand to lose. Uh, Senator Rand Paul, as the ranking Republican on the Small Business Committee in the Senate, recently released some state-by-state data about how this is going to affect people. As I recall, 39% of the workers in Alabama are at risk of losing their jobs over the mandate. Uh, uh, or, no, 39% was West Virginia, 37% in Alabama, 33% in Arizona, I believe Utah was 31%. This is a huge segment of each of these states' workforces that are at risk of getting fired over this. And it's it's got to be terribly difficult for each of those people, and it's also not wise for the country as a whole. Yeah, and I want to I want to pivot to the supply issue, supply chain issues because we've been talking a lot about that um, here at Free the People, and 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 by the way, this was horribly predictable in March of 2020 when they started telling people to stay home and they started shutting down businesses. Um, perhaps naively thinking they could just flip the switch back on when it was convenient and it turns out in a complex economy you can't do that but one of the one of the reports you're the ranking member of the joint economic committee and and timely to this conversation um, several months ago you released a report about the structure structural barriers to work in this country and and there was a data point that that shocked me Um, 1955, 97% of, of men were working, and I'm sure there's other qualifiers. And that has dropped pre-pandemic to 89%. And you, you list all of these, these, these regulatory and, and other government barriers to, that, that discourage work, but that was pre-pandemic. And if you add the vaccine mandate uh, on top of that, you are talking about a fairly catastrophic labor shortage, which, which manifests its, 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 it in, in very specific ways like truck drivers or people working in warehouses or, or a million other things that none of us know about. Um, so that's, that's one piece. The other piece is, is we're learning that the, the shipping distribution process itself is quite brittle because of other government failures. And you have been a leader on this. I've been waiting forever to have a um, relevant, timely conversation about the Jones Act. Mm. Here we are. An issue near and dear to my heart. People sometimes ask, you know, you're from a landlocked state. Why would you be obsessed over the Jones Act, something that deals with maritime shipping? Well, I, I'm part of the United States of America. Therefore, I'm impacted by the Jones Act. Every American is. Now, it's worse in some states than it is in others. But the Jones Act essentially says that if you want a shipping vessel to be able to go from one U.S. port to another U.S. port, you must do so in a shipping vessel that is built, owned, crewed, and flagged in the United States. Now, uh, I, I gather that this made sense, or at least that Congress concluded that it made sense as a way for us to, I don't know, fight World War I. And, and if what we were trying to do was prepare for World War I again, uh, maybe that would be your thing. But, you know, it, it, it's been a long time. The Jones Act was like 1920, something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And, and I think it was a, a kind of a, a post hoc effort 
to say what could we do to be more prepared to fight World War I than we were when we fought World War I. I don't actually think it made any sense then, but it certainly doesn't make any sense now. And the things let me have, explain things why. Things have changed well, since World War I. They have. They've changed substantially for a variety of reasons, a lot of them having to do with our tax and especially our, our regulatory structure. Uh, we don't build as many ships in the United States as uh, a percentage of what's in use as we might have a century or so ago. And there is a, a, a very large competitive shipbuilding industry in other parts of the world where they can build ships of the sort that you need from go uh, to, to cross an ocean uh, uh, laden with shipping containers. In fact, uh, buying a Jones Act compliant vessel costs six to eight times more than, uh, than a non-Jones Act compliant vessel. So that's an, an enormous cost. We're talking about, you know, 200, 250 million dollars. Uh, if you buy one built in the United States is compared to one-sixth uh, to one-eighth that cost if it's built somewhere else. That's just the beginning of the issue. If, you, if you're also going to have it U.S. crude, um, that is going to cost you about three times, about triple. A, a shipping container vessel of this sort uh, w will cost you about $7,000 per day to crew if, if, if it's a non-U.S. crew. It's going to be about $20,000, $21,000 a day if it's a U.S. crew. Now, when you add all these things up, it just makes it very, very difficult for the American consumer to not get gouged. And when you look at the actual beneficiaries of this, this is the classic um, problem of concentrated benefits, a small handful of very wealthy interests involved in shipbuilding and uh, ownership of, of, of ships, small handful of them, uh, compare it maybe to the sugar industry in the United States. And then everybody in America pays a little bit more for almost everything they buy, or essentially everything they buy if it has at some point or another come over in a ship, which a lot of stuff is. In some parts of the country, it's really, really bad. Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and parts of New England are especially bad, where uh, the Grassroots Institute of Hawaii has estimated that this may cost uh, an individual family thousands of dollars more in a particular year to live just to buy the things that they need because of the Jones Act. Yeah. And that, that of course, was pre-pandemic. Yes. And, and I believe that um, the Jones Act has been suspended in the past for emergencies, um, uh, hurricanes like Katrina, where you really needed to um, dramatically immediately expand um, shipping capacity. Um, could the Biden administration suspend the Jones Act? Yes. Yes, it could. I've suggested that it should. I, uh, uh, I think the American people would benefit, and I think we could close a lot of our supply chain issues if we suspended it for a period of time. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've introduced something called the Stop the Grinch Act. Uh, the Stop the Grinch Act was an, an he's, idea. He's right here. Where is he? he Where's the Grinch? He's over here somewhere. It? Well, he, he's with us he's always with us in, uh, in our oh, hearts. He fell off uh, the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but my wife and I were um, 
at Costco a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about supply chain issues, as one does while at Costco. And all of a sudden, this idea came to me. I started thinking about all the ways in which federal regulatory hurdles make it harder for products to get from wherever they were made, many of them have been made overseas, uh, into a U.S. port, from the U.S. port onto a truck, from that truck uh, to various distribution locations, including a, a Costco. Uh, this one uh, happens to be in Orem, Utah. And I came up with a list, and we decided to propose something that would suspend things like the Jones Act, certain of the more egregious trucking and shipping regulations uh, that are in place. Um, uh, we would suspend certain regulations necessary to be able to store shipping containers, excess shipping containers on federal land, uh, give more people access to the port location, open up the availability of truck chassis and a, and a handful of other things. Just by lifting a few regulatory burdens for a period of time, uh, a period of uh, uh, six months or so, would do more to open up the supply chain problems than any other thing I could think of. So we just recently introduced the Stop the Grinch Act. This one went from concept to introduce legislation in a matter of weeks. And are these all things that the Biden administration could do administratively if they chose to? Uh, many, if not most of them, it could do. Yeah. It's better if they've got legislation. There are uh, things about Jones Act waivers that uh, would be made clearer if they did it this way. But yeah, there are other ways they could do most of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, legislation would be ideal because none of these things should be barriers to, to uh, getting people the goods they need for Christmas ever. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's my belief, it, it, and this is a concern that I've developed over a long period of time, it's not, um, it's not necessarily specific to either political party, but I don't like the idea of giving so much regulatory flexibility and discretion to the executive branch of government such that you can give any president at any moment uh, the keys to the kingdom yeah. and the ability to say, I personally did this. Uh, not in a system where the people's elected lawmakers in the legislative branch are supposed to be in charge of policy. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's the executive branch headed by the president that has the power to execute, implement, enforce, and administer the laws. I, I get that. And that necessarily entails a degree of discretion and flexibility. But when we know that a certain policy has to be undertaken, it's bad form on the part of Congress to simply deflect by saying, well, the president can do this, so we're not going to act. Right. We can direct it. And in fact, it is our job to direct the government what to do. That was the same logic that some of your Republican colleagues expressed when you were trying to get a clear sense from Congress that vaccine mandates were not acceptable. And, you know, they said, I think irresponsibly, well, the courts will take care of yeah. that. Yeah. Good luck with that. In a couple of respects. First of all, because even though I believe the courts will do the right thing and that the right thing is to conclude that uh, these uh, mandates, especially, for example, the OSHA mandate, this one is just so egregious. All of them are mean. All of them are unnecessary and unwise. But that one seems especially reckless from a, a, a legal and constitutional perspective. Uh, I think the courts will do the right thing. But we can't assume 
that that another branch of government outside our control will do the right thing and will do what we would want them to do. And it is, moreover, a betrayal of our oath to uphold, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States if we're not willing to pull the levers that we control on our own. In other words, constitutionality and legality uh, really are responsibilities assigned to each branch and each member of each branch. We have to do whatever we can, knowing that the other two branches might get it wrong. But we control this one. Yeah. And this one happens to be the most dangerous branch. Yeah. This is it's sort of been your project since you got to Washington DC is for the legislative branch to take back its responsibilities and legislate and it you you can't rein in executive power unless legislators actually take that responsibility back. Indeed. Indeed. We have to be willing to do it. And it is it is ours to exercise. And make no mistake. It's it's not as though it's been seized from us by some unknown being or, or, or unseen force. It's neither of those things. We've given it away willfully over many decades. We've done it for the political convenience of individual members who find that it's more politically advantageous to give discretion to somebody else so that we don't have to answer for the difficult line-drawing problems that inherit in the legislative process. This feels like a beautiful opportunity to shamelessly plug your series that Free the People and the Federalist Society are producing called The Constitution Line by Line with Mike Lee. I feel like this is a subject that we have delved into. The Constitution Line by Line um, really will make you um, laugh. It'll make you cry. It'll, it, at times it'll make you uh, weep hot tears of joy because we, we, we cover the text, yeah. the unadorned, unadulterated text, and then we go into a discussion about what it means. It's good stuff. It's very good stuff. So I have, I have a theory, and, and I know you got to get to the Senate floor and, and try to defend what, what few uh, constitutional rights we have left. Um, but I have a theory. I'm an optimist about this. I, I think that um, the supply chain problems and the vaccine mandates and, and the oppressive way that dissenters have not been allowed to speak their minds um, um, on social media, all the blue checks telling us what we can't say about um, things like vaccine mandates. I think there's a counter-revolution brewing. And, and I'm going to float this past you. Do you are, you. are you sensing anything? Uh, and I assume by counter-revolution, you mean a, a, a peaceful re revolution, but a, a revolution in the hearts of the American people who will no longer look to the federal government as some kind of idol god that they are supposed to worship and in whom they're supposed to have faith. Yes, um, and and I, I always speak about revolution in the nonviolent restoration of core American values sense. Um, I've, I've always been that way. Um, but it's, it's a revolution nonetheless, and, and some of those principles, and we've, we've touched on them, um, I think a lot of Americans across the political spectrum are thinking, you know what, I'm an essential worker too, and I should have a right to go to my job and earn a decent living for my family. Um, I don't think that's radical, but but so many 
of our political overlords have been dividing us between us and them. You're essential. You're non-essential. Oh, you were essential, but now you because you didn't comply with this vaccine mandate, uh, we're going to throw you over the side. Um, that's that that one principle is something that that I think could really unite people. It it is, and I think it could. I think it will. I think it's in the process of happening. Those of us who who already believe that have uh, an added responsibility right now to help echo that point, to help people understand that. These principles were once widely taught in in schools, you know, in elementary, junior high, and high school, and college. Uh, they are being taught less so now. Uh, but um, for those of us who understand that whenever government acts, it does so at the expense of individual liberty, and that there's therefore no such thing as uh, as government just getting involved and having categorically uh, positive things flow from it without any cost attached to it. Sometimes the cost is much higher, sometimes it's lower, but bad things happen when people are asked to have faith in government as if it were an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, benevolent being. It's none of those things. Government is only force. Yeah. And uh, we've got we've to treat it with the caution that it deserves to be treated with no differently than than fire or electricity y y these are things that are useful that we rely on yeah but we understand that they're dangerous you don't just handle it haphazardly we've been doing that with government well i, I think about uh, uh, the vaccine mandate is is in my mind a form of violence um, and another principle that that would be very important to most americans would be the idea that you have the freedom to make healthcare choices for yourself. Um, the government can't force you to do that. And, and that is another principle that I feel is, is under attack here and, and perhaps the counter-revolution. And I'm seeing these, these massive anti-vax mandate marches all over Europe. Um, and they're surely not um, constitutional conservatives. They're just people with an instinct that's like, this is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. So, so that's an opportunity as well. Yeah, they get the fact that when government does something, it's using either the actual or implicit threat of violence. There is at least the potential for government violence if you defy a government directive. Now, this is as it as it must be. There's not really a, a an an alternative for governments. Most of the time, you don't see government physically forcing people to do most things, at least not in this country. Um, but ultimately, that's what separates governments from other entities. Governments can use violence with the sanction and the blessing of law and society insofar as the people enforcing it um, have force and a badge. Guns with badges uh, make government distinct and, and the immunity that goes with it. But once we have to understand what it actually is. Once you understand what it is, you're more likely to treat it with caution. Yeah. The uh, mayor of New York, who is happily a short-timer, has come out just a couple days ago with sweeping new mandates prohibiting um, unvaccinated New Yorkers from from participating in, in basic elements of society in it and you're already seeing crazy stuff in, in places like Australia where they're where they're building camps 
to forcibly put um, people, not, not just the unvaccinated, but, but everybody, um, until they can prove that um, they're, they've quarantined and they're, they're, they're not sick. Um, it, it seems like another fundamental right of Americans is to leave your house whenever you want, without anyone's permission, without papers, uh, free to go into public spaces, um, free to cross state borders. Uh, you, you still can't go to Hawaii, for instance, without, without proving your, your status. And, and that seems so un-American that, that we would um, require people to prove whatever, whatever it is, in order to go about their lives. You think about how many aspects of your day-to-day life require government permission. And by the time you get to the point where you have to provide, you have to get permission in advance to do something that itself presents no threat to others that that doesn't involve inherently criminal activity. Uh, it's kind of frightening. Uh, the role of government is supposed to be, um, uh, as you told as you told me years ago, and as you told America years ago. Uh, uh, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That really is the role of government, is to tell people that. And the further afield we get for that, the closer we get to the point where you have to get permission from government just to live your life. That's unacceptable. Yeah. So um, you you are a lonely guy in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, you're standing in front of the train one more time. What, what do you think is going to happen? Will you guys be here until Christmas Eve? And, and will anything good come out of this latest spending battle? Uh, so the, the Build Back Better plan, I assume, is what you're referring yeah. to now. The short answer to that is no. Not in, I mean, no, nothing good will come out of the Build Back Better plan uh, unless, that is, we just defeat it in its entirety. We, we need another... $5 trillion in spending, and, and to be sure, although the Democrats are now saying uh, it's, it's now more like you know $1.75 trillion, as if that were a bargain, that's creative scoring. Um, there's, there's more scoring that's going to be coming out later this week that I think is going to show the more accurate number is closer to $5 trillion, even with this supposedly scaled back version. The last thing we need right now is for the federal government to just churn out more money, which it effectively just prints. That, that results in, in more dollars circulating, more dollars chasing more or less the same number of goods. In fact, fewer goods because of the supply chain issues that the government itself has created. And so what that means is that if you're wealthy, if you're a trust fund baby, a hedge fund manager, if you um, uh, are, are super wealthy, uh, or, or let's say if you earn your living as a highly compensated professional, a doctor, a lawyer, someone like that, th- those professions are probably all going to be okay from that. They have enough of, a, of an economic cushion that's not going to hurt them. Everybody else gets really hurt by that. So that's why I say nothing good is likely to come from this. I'm sure you could point, if this were to pass, you could point to some good people who would benefit in some ways that someone could describe as good. But the net impact of it is terrible. So it should not pass. I don't know how long we're going to be here. I, uh, 
I, I, I would like to think that Chuck Schumer won't keep us here over Christmas to do it, but we're going to fight this thing as hard as we can. This thing is transformational and not in a good way. This, 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 this idea and, and the way that inflation steals from working people, and it's really a, a sort of a, a – it's a transfer from the have-nots to the haves – and our Democratic friends tell us that that's everything they're fighting against. So they give them a little bit of money, but it's money that's not worth that much. And they do it by stealing, essentially, from their bank account. Um, I don't know how we get people to realize that, that this game is so rigged, but maybe maybe there's a counter-revolution in there somewhere, too. I think there's got to be. Uh, look, you know, once again, you see with this, the, the problem of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Anytime the government spends this much money, and this was an argument I used in response to the bipartisan infrastructure package a couple of months ago, whenever government spends large sums like that, a small handful of people will get very, very rich off of it. Everyone else pays for it. And as a result, they don't, they don't see, they can't quantify. There's no statement at the end of the day saying, here's exactly how much you are paying for this, because it's hidden and built into the cost of everything else they buy. This is really good for the wealthy and the well-connected. I see your, for everyone else. your staffer is freaking out. You probably have to get to the Senate floor. Thank you, Senator Lee. Thanks so much. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty. Honest conversations with interesting people.